Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So the popular idea out there is that women are more social than men, and men are more competitive than women. What's more, these tendencies are socially conditioned rather than biologically innate. But what if it's the other way around? My guest today is a psychologist who has spent 30 years researching the differences between how boys and girls socialize, and she's discovered that many of the ideas that people have on the subject are completely wrong. Her name is Joyce Benison, and she's the author of the book Warriors and Warriors, The Survival of the Sexes. And today on the show, Joyce and I discuss the biological origins of male and female socialization, why men prefer all male groups, and why women can be just as, if not more competitive as men. We also discuss how men compete to cooperate and why men can make up much faster with an enemy than women can. Really fascinating podcast. After the show, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Benenson. That's B-E-N-E-N-S-O-N for links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Joyce Benenson, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so you are the author of a book called Warriors and Warriors. Uh, it talks about the differences between how boys and girls socialize. Uh, but before we get to the, to the details of your research, can you tell us a little about your background? I mean, what led you to researching these social differences between boys and girls? Okay, so I was trained as a developmental psychologist, and I spent a lot of my time out on the playground watching kids far away from adults do what kids do naturally, which is not so easy to see these days. Um, And what I was seeing is a tremendous difference in how boys and girls were playing with boys in large groups, um, engaging in either fighting or team sports, um, being as far away as possible from their schools or any adults that were around and so forth. And in contrast, girls, either with a best friend or a small clique, not engaging in any sort of competition, if possible, staying as close as possible to the teachers and actually staying in the schools if they're at a school or a camp um, near the counselors and helping out teachers and trying to be with adults. Okay. So yeah, right there, you talked about the the big, broad differences. And I thought it was interesting you said that it's harder to to see nowadays because there's less playtime, less recess. Exactly. It really is. And adults are trying to control everything kids do. So um, what you're seeing is not natural. It's what kids are being forced into um, by protective adults. So um, it's harder to look at what kids would most like to do. Okay. And so uh, these differences, are they, are they innate or are they the result of culture and socialization or are they a bit of both? Okay, well, always they would be a bit of both, but um, regardless of how they begin initially, um, certainly if they're beginning early in childhood, there's a lot of socialization that occurs long before kids get to be adults. 
So um, the reason I study young kids is I do think it's more likely to have an innate bias if you see it really early. And some of the research I do is even with infants. So if it's there with infants, I kind of think there's probably good evidence that there's some innate bias. But regardless, if it's there with infants or in early childhood, there's a lot of practice, which is socialization, not necessarily by adults, which is how usually people think about socialization, um, but by peers. And so there's a lot of that happening. So you talk about the research you do on infants in your book. I thought that was interesting. How can you tell, for example, that boys prefer, you know, larger groups, um, you know, rough and tumble play, even when they're six months old and they can't really socialize? Okay, so um, what you do is children, including babies, are have lots of preferences just like anybody else, just like animals do. So you put two videos side by side and you just determine which way kids are looking. So you put an infant on his or her mother's lap um, and you blindfold the mother or sometimes it's a father and then you just play um, on these screens pictures of groups or pictures of individuals, pictures of hitting motions or pictures of cradling motions. And we find even at six months of age that boys are more likely to prefer the groups over the individuals and boys are more likely to prefer the hitting motions as opposed to the cradling motions. That's really interesting. I mean, that's yeah, pretty funny that even infant boys <laughs> like to watch people get pummeled. Um, yeah. So, I mean, do they, I mean, I, I imagine, um, I mean, you kind of, you described yourself as a, a, a human primatologist, I think is what you talked talk right. about in your book. I mean, do you see this, these, this, the, this, these differences in other primates uh, between boys and girls or males and females? Okay. So, so, um, I work most closely with Richard Rangham at Harvard and he studies chimpanzees. And the reason I started working with him is because he was the only one I could find who was looking at exactly what I was looking at, which is the social structure of humans. And he was looking at the social structure of chimpanzees, and we were both finding the exact same differences, which is that males were organizing themselves spontaneously in large groups, very interconnected, constantly fighting, but also fighting against other groups. And in contrast, females in both species were either by themselves and just with adults or their own children, or sometimes females will form one close best friend relationship. So um, it was just uncanny. And when I discovered that as a graduate student, I started thinking, why isn't anyone who studies humans talking about the basic social structure of humans? And they weren't. And they still aren't for the most part. But primatologists are, this is what they do when they study a species. One of the first things they establish is, what's its social structure? That's amazing. Yeah, we had uh, Richard Rangham on the podcast a while back ago. So for those of you who haven't checked that out, uh, just search for it on the site. A uh, really fascinating uh, podcast about demonic males was what his, his book was. Exactly. Um, so let's talk about like, so why do these differences exist? What's the, I mean, I guess it's an evolutionary explanation. Why do boys or men prefer large groups, large social networks, uh, fighting while girls prefer smaller, tight knit communities, maybe just like one or two close friends and more cooperation, or I guess not cooperation, more, I don't know what you would call it. Not rough and well, tumble. Uh, co- yeah, well, exactly. I mean, what we talk about with cooperation is females cooperating with their families, with kin, with taking care of children. So, you know, that's what they're doing. Um, males are cooperating with unrelated same-sex individuals. And just building on the reference to demonic males, humans and chimpanzees are one of the very few species that engage in intergroup lethal aggression, which in uh, human parlance we call war. 
So basically, if you're going to have a community try to kill another community, or in these days, a country try to invade another country, um, you need very, very strong cooperation. And the individuals who generally do that throughout human history are males. And in chimpanzee communities uh, across Africa, it's the same thing. Individuals who do that are males. So it's really important that these males are successful. It's important to the whole community because if not, your community gets taken over by another community and they get your food and they kill you. And that's kind of the end of your community. So the cooperation and the self-sacrifice and the trust that has to exist amongst the males of your community is really, really important. And that is true whether it's chimpanzees or humans. And I became so fascinated by Richard Rangham's work because it was so similar to what we have in humans and so rare in animal species. Yeah, and you, you talk about in the book sort of uh, about the, the fears, the different fears that boys and girls have uh, and how and how that influ- influences the way they socialize. And you say, like, for boys, the big fear that boys have are enemies. Like, they want to, like, they fear enemies, but they also kind of like having enemies. Exactly. I mean, enemies are really, really attractive to boys. So, you know, they have sharks and tiger enemies. They have, you know, mean uh, men enemies. And, of course, they make up all kinds of enemies that come from Mars and that come from all kinds of other alien uh, spaces and whatever. So boys are really, I see that by three, they assume, they assume the responsibility for getting rid of the enemy, which is a whole group or horrible individual who can decimate their community. And girls have no interest in this whatsoever. Girls are much more concerned with making sure they don't get sick, making sure things are healthy, making sure you know that um, they don't get cut, all kinds of things that really in the real life of three-year-olds make a bigger difference to their survival. So that's why I find it so funny because um, boys are doing things that at three, they're not going to be responsible for at all, um, which is why they more often end up in the emergency room all over the world. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about um, that these differences are all based on survival for, for boys, for the community to survive. uh, They need, need men who can fight. So it makes sense that boys would kind of be had this tendency to fight and cooperate in large gr- groups where women, the survival thing is all about taking care of your kids and making sure that they survive and they can pass on your genes. Exactly. So by age five in a lot of communities in the world, um, girls are already taking care of their younger siblings. So it's, it's really important, their work. And that continues, of course, for the rest of their life when grandmothers take care of their grandchildren. And it really does affect the chances that their grandchildren live. So girls' jobs are really important. Boys don't have that level of importance until the enemy uh, attacks or they need food or resources for their community and they have to be the one attacking. attacking. So you have, you know, really a whole different set of responsibilities for girls versus boys. At least that's how I see it. And I see it by age three. Yeah, that, that is, it's really amazing. Um, so like going back to this idea, common, what you said real earlier about cooperation, I think there's this common idea out there that, you know, women are more social than men, but it seems like your research suggests that's not actually true, that men um, might be even sometimes more social than women. Uh, why do we have this idea that women are more social than men and how are men oftentimes more social than women? Right. Okay. So um, most of the social sciences 
describe women as the communal sex, the cooperative sex, the emotionally connected sex, the caring sex, whatever. And men are independent and agentic and, you know, status driving and not really into anybody else. Um, this is what the social science literature says. And I think what they're doing is they're looking at, at the incredible bonds that mothers form to their children, to husbands, to their own mothers. Um, and these really um, are last throughout a lifetime. So they're very, very powerful. In contrast, right, boys are off going as far as, part, uh, as far away as possible from, you know, their, their parents, their homes. They're going off with each other, so and they're fighting, and they're you know committing homicide with ratios ten to one. Um, so this does not sound communal or caring or interconnected. In fact, though, if you look at relationships between unrelated same-sex peers, girls with girls, women with women, or boys with boys, men with men, you find that boys and men are cooperating much more with each other. They'll die for each other in a war. And if you look at who's running the government, who's running religious institutions, who's running educational institutions, um, just now women are kind of entering these bastions of male cooperation. But they've always been male, and they've built society. Men have built society. There is no other way to say it. Women, we are keeping people alive, but men have cooperated to build societies. And so I think you need to say, okay, are you talking about with families, with kin, or are you talking about with unrelated individuals who shared none of your genes? And that's where I see men as much more communal and cooperative. And as I say in my book, what could be more communal or cooperative than warfare? I mean, you're living with these filthy, swearing, you know, uh, same age, unrelated men, and you're having a ball a lot of the time. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting, too, you talk about how men, you know, compete with each other and with other groups to bond, which seems really counterintuitive that you would, you can bond that way through competition. Right. So I have an article out this week that's, that's received a lot of press. And what it does is it looks at four different sports, tennis, table tennis, badminton, and boxing, where they literally try to kill each other. And I looked at those sports to try to build on what I had done in the book and say, how do you get from constant one-on-one competition and even aggression to cooperation in a group against other groups. And the mechanism that Richard Rangham and I came up with was reconciliation. So what happens in chimpanzee communities is males who are fighting all the time, whereas females barely fight, um, males who are fighting all the time also reconcile a higher percentage of their conflicts by engaging in post-conflict affiliation. They hug each other, they actually shake hands, they touch each other's hand and they shake it. Um, and that allows them then to turn around and bond with their former opponent. And what what we did, um, or what Richard Rangham and I did just recently um, and published this week, is try to make that um, link clear in humans. So across these four sports, males, after losing a competition, because it's hard for me to understand as a woman, but they will hug each other. They'll warmly shake hands. They'll give each other pets on the back. And, you know, they just run, uh, lost a Grand Slam tennis championship. They just almost killed each other in a boxing match. Sometimes they actually do kill each other, in which case they can't do this, but they always feel bad, really bad about it afterwards. In contrast, after these competitions where you would expect that women wouldn't care as much, you know, they're supposed to be more cooperative, but of course they're with unrelated females, 
women can barely touch each other. They'll like uh, uh, rub each other's fingers and then run off the court. Um, they'll give each other a quick hug in boxing and get out of there as fast as possible. And you can see that they're really having a hard time. And I understand this. If I just lost to somebody and I really cared about winning because I'm a top athlete and these athletes came from 44 different countries, I too would want to get out of there, you know, and hate the person who just deprived me of the status and the money and everything that I worked so hard to achieve. But men don't do that. They they literally somehow manage to get over it really fast. I mean, is the thinking the reason why men do that is because, you know, that person that beat them could be a potential ally in the future. So you want to make up? That's exactly our thinking. So basically, you know, if in one chapter I'm talking about competition and fighting and, you know, constant competition among boys, and in the next chapter I'm talking about group cooperation. And the question is, you know, how do you go from A to B? Something has to happen in the middle, which doesn't make sense um, to me as a female. But this is the best evidence that we have now, which is there is this post-conflict affiliation. And it happens within five minutes with chimpanzee males. And it happens immediately within five minutes for these sports com- competitors. And it's just, it's just unnerving to watch because I, I don't know, I can't stand it because as a woman, I'm thinking, how could they do that? But the men really look warm. They really look like they care about the person who just killed them or who they just killed. And the women look just stunned and like they, they're disgusted. And I, I think it's interesting you highlight in the book um, a famous experiment that happened actually here in Oklahoma, the Robbers Cave experiment, that sort of highlights right. this different this this um, contrast between boys competing with each other, but then reconciling with each other to you know go after another enemy. Can you talk a little bit about the Robbers Cave experiment. Yeah, that's one of the most classic studies. Um, they brought two groups, I believe, as eleven-year-old boys. Um, to two campsites that were uh, distant, so they didn't know about one another. And these boys gave themselves names, the Eagles and the Rattlers. And um, then slowly the counselors let them become aware of the fact of one another's existence. And immediately after these boys within their own groups had been competing over all kinds of things that boys at camp, you know, compete over having their own tugs of war and, you know, um, baseball and whatever, now all of a sudden there's another group. So they drop this extreme competition and they let whoever is best at whatever is the domain, whether it's tug of war or it's baseball or it's tent building or whatever the competitions that the counselors organized were, these boys then chose the best boy from their group to lead all of them, supported him totally. They had hierarchies and their sole goal was try to try to beat the other group. And boy, was it intense. They had to actually break them up sometime. They felt so strongly about winning against the other group. Yeah, I think there was like raiding going on. Like they would like go and raid the other guy's cabin, steal stuff, demolish yep. things. Yep. And I think the yep. experimenters yep. even thought about calling off the experiment because it was getting a little out of hand. Yeah, it was out of hand, and they thought they could, you know, bring them together and watch some movies, and everything would be okay. So they started getting really worried, and they were trying all these joint, you know, having dinner together, and all this wasn't working. Finally, the only thing that worked is they created an emergency that required the two boys to get together as one team, and that's where you see organizations like NATO and and these um, 
alliances across the world that seem to be the only way to get warring nations together in many cases. And in this case, I think they had a truck breakdown and the boys were really stranded and both the eagles and the rattlers were on the truck and they needed all of them because the truck was so heavy to push the truck. I can't remember the details and, and to save all the boys. And then that broke down the barriers between the two groups. Right. So they had the enemy. The enemy was the truck. It was the common enemy. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, and going back to this difference between how you know boys and girls socialize, um, you talk about in the book that boys prefer all male groups, while girls aren't very particular about their group of friends, if it's co-ed or not. Why is that? Well, okay, again, I have an evolutionary explanation. Um, so what I would argue is that male groups, and that means unrelated boys, right, really benefit from one another. So they mutually need to grow up together, form their bonds so they can defend their communities if another community attacks or if they're going to attack another community. I don't, and I know this is very controversial, but I don't see the advantage of unrelated females spending time together. And even though it feels wonderful to have a best friend, and a best friend certainly can be a source of relaxation, and she can even be a protection against other girls trying to hurt you in terms of socially excluding you and so forth. But basically, a woman is faced with bringing up her children, and she never has enough energy to accomplish that on her own. So who's going to help her? Well, not another woman who also doesn't have enough energy to bring up her own children. That makes no sense. So therefore, a, a woman, a mother, turns to those who have a genetic interest in her children, her own mother, her husband, um, any other female relatives, maybe her in-laws. Those are the people that are going to be most likely to invest. Hopefully, they've already had their children, so that there's no competition with raising children. But an unrelated woman, she can be a source of sharing similar experiences, which is wonderful to have, feels good. But in the end, it's amazing to me how much women do not help each other raise their own kids. They don't get together and say, okay, listen, we all have kids. We're all stuck. We don't have enough energy we need to produce. We have, you know, unreliable husbands. So why don't we share this burden all together? You know, because some of us will work and some of us will take care of the kids and, and we don't need to, you know, have husbands. We don't need to have families. We can do it ourselves. I'm, I, I'm not aware of that happening. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. 
Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. That's really interesting. And so going back to, to boys, like how, so the boys prefer all male groups. How do they decide who's in the group or who's not? Okay. So I talk about this quite a bit. Um, it, you know, I was describing a lot of results people have found in developmental psychology, but from a theoretical point of view, who should be in the group? Well, who will help you if you are fighting against another group? You want people that you can trust. So who can you trust? Well, girls are just so much weaker and slower and really much less strong at throwing projectiles and so forth. So you don't want girls. That's not helpful. And you don't want your mother, as much as she loves you and takes care of you, she's going to be of no use if there's a war. Um, so eventually, when you get to be a teenager, you're going to be at the height of your physical prowess. You want others who are also at the height of their physical prowess. So you want 
strong individuals. You want emotionally cool individuals who are not going to break down because they're so afraid because they might be killed. You want individuals who are going to be sociable and follow the rules so that you don't have uh, males going off and doing whatever they want. They're going to be loyal to the group and they're going to be able to listen to the hierarchy. So you make sure that the best people are at the top. You want people who have expertise. So those who are particularly good, for example, with leadership, those who are good at repairing things, those are good at understanding strategy for how to attack, whatever it is, even those who are good at cooking, you know, any kind of strength that can contribute to the war effort is really worthwhile. And you don't want girls, and I talk about homosexual boys, but I only mean homosexual boys who are not willing to help out the other boys. I always found it so horrifying and yet amazing that so early in life, boys ostracize other boys who are more effeminate. And I thought, why do they bother do this, right? It's so costly to spend so much time what is it? And then I realized, I mean, there's a lot of men who are homosexual who are just fine with fighting. There's no problem with it. And, you know, many people think you can be heterosexual and hetero homosexual at the same time. But those boys who don't like other boys, who would prefer to be with the girls, prefer to play house, who are scared, who don't want to follow the rules, because girls don't like these rules either, who don't want to, you know, basically be cool and who aren't particularly physically tough, they're not going to be a help you know, if there's an enemy that fights, uh, fights you. So therefore, what you want are boys who have certain characteristics that would contribute to the fighting force. And of course, everyone in developmental psychology knows that boys don't like um, other boys with these particular traits. They, you know, they break all the rules. They, they're not sociable with the other boys. They're not physically tough. They're not emotionally cool, so forth. Um, and so I, I, everyone knows this, but I, then I, it suddenly occurred to me, well, there's a good reason that boys would come so early with these preferences because that's exactly what the army is describing. They don't want either. And, uh, you know, going back to that idea that what boys and men don't like is not necessarily homosexuality. It's just effeminacy. Um, exactly. So like, so is, are there instances where a girl could be a part of the male gang? If like, if they're like tomboyish? Yes, I do think boys will accept tomboys. Um, All over the world, boys are always superior, dominant to girls. And, you know, I think a girl has to put up with that. But if she really likes playing with the boys, if she likes following the rules, if she's physically tough, if she's emotionally cool, if she's got some expertise she can contribute, boys will take that. And, of course, more and more girls are entering, you know, the army, the military in the United States. In some countries, they do all the time. Um, and it is true, actually, with chimpanzees, too. Almost all of the ones who are engaging in intergroup war um, are male. But occasionally you have a female who's really tough. Um, the ones I'm aware of didn't ever have their own children. They were sterile. And they'll join, and the males will treat them as another male. And, you know, they're, they're not going to be dominant. They're going to be subordinate. But they'll take them along, and they're useful because... There's power numbers. Yeah. And I th- going back to this idea, I thought it was something you just mentioned earlier about how boys are obsessed with rules and rulemaking, which is kind of weird because you always think of like as boys as being troublesome. They don't obey the rules in class, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Why are boys obsessed with rules and rulemaking? 
Okay, so again, uh, very important. They certainly not are obsessed or willing to even follow the rules of authority figures. They are obsessed with their own rules. And my um, best guess as to the reason this is the case is this is how you create a hierarchy. And boys are constantly competing over everything. I mean, at three years of age, they're competing over the, to me, silliest things, like who can make the best paper airplane, who can jump highest in the air, who can, you know, run their tricycle fastest across the room, whatever it is they can think of. They'll compete over it. Um, but it's very important that the other boys fall into line. So they need to acknowledge, and they do acknowledge, who's the best, who's the second best, who's the third best. But just because you're the best in one area, like uh, making the best paper airplanes, doesn't mean you can jump the highest. So the idea is these are rules. Who Who is top? Who is second top? Who is third? Third, and that means that if you happen to be facing another group, you can put your best man forward. And so I think that's part of it. Now, I know that there have been studies looking at um, team sports where boys will spend more time negotiating the rules and renegotiating them than they will actually playing the game. So I don't totally understand what's the reason, but I have to guess it has to do with strategy in terms of, okay, this is how we are going to run our team, our group, perhaps our uh, military outfit. And listen, you can't break it. You can't break the rule because we're going to die if you do. So that is, again, totally guess, but that is my guess, that you need others who can flexibly create new rules, break them, but agree to follow whatever that group's rules are at the moment. Very interesting. So we've been talking about um, competition amongst boys, um, but girls compete too, but they do it in a different way. How do girls compete with each other? Okay, so... um, Girls um, have to be really careful not to get hurt because girls are responsible for their whole lives, really starting at age five in many, you know, traditional cultures for taking care of their younger siblings. And grandmothers, as I said, will take care of their grandchildren. And and really, there's studies showing they uh, can affect whether their grandchildren live or not. So throughout their lives, girls are responsible for keeping others alive. Um, they're born with a finite number of ova. They have to make sure they don't hurt them. They have to protect their bodies, which are in many ways much more complicated than boys' bodies, so they can't get hurt. So no fighting physically, if you can help it at all. And therefore, girls have to figure out a different way to compete because there are things to compete for. Um, in most societies, girls in adolescence do compete for men, um, even when their parents are helping make the selection, girls will have some say in it almost always. In hunter-gatherer tribes, um, women make their own choices, which is like here. So there's really good reason to compete. And before that, girls compete over friends. They compete over resources. They compete over activities. So they do compete. So um, the question is, what do they do? And, of course, they're going to use some type of aggression where they can't get caught and they can't... Um, uh, face retaliation, which could, which could physically hurt them. So what do they do? They disguise their aggression. Um, you can disguise aggression in a lot of ways. You can, um, well, you can beat up somebody's stuff, like um, ruin her art project or whatever when she's not there. Um, you can t- say terrible things about anyone when she's not there. You can try to ruin someone's reputation. Um, and you can do it even when a girl who is your target is right there as long as you're subtle enough. So if you're saying to this girl, oh, you know, poor you, you know, it's such a shame that you have whatever vulnerability. And it sounds good to the outside world, but in fact, you're putting this girl down. 
And then if there's enough people around, you can damage this girl without her knowing even what's happening because it's so subtle. And you can do this with nonverbal gestures. So you can flick your hair, you can roll your eyes, you can emphasize some words or make a very prescient pause, whatever it is. Um, and you say to others, this girl's no good. And if it's serious enough, so you have a really pretty girl, you have a newcomer girl in adolescence, you have a girl who's vulnerable in some way, so she's a low-hanging fruit, you can get together with the other girls and you can really effectively ostracize a girl. And because there's not power in numbers, in fact, there's more resources and more males around if you get rid of a girl or a woman, um, it's scary to be a girl or woman with only unrelated girls around because girls do aggress. And eventually, of course, they, in adolescence and adulthood, girls will turn to authority figures like men and others and try to ostracize a girl from the community. And even, I will say, in um, preschool, girls will go tell the teacher, much more than boys will, to try to get rid of some other girl who's breaking the rules. So, And those rules are teachers' rules. And so what you have is girls using completely different strategies than boys, but nevertheless aggressing and competing. So yeah, girls will use third parties while boys will just try to take care of, you know, self-help. Self, yeah. Okay. Um, so how does uh, environment affect these innate um, tendencies for socialization? Like is when times of stress and danger, do they amplify? And then in times of like prosperity and safety, do they kind of diminish? Yeah, that's exactly what, you know, I would argue. Now, again, here, the research has not been done and it ought to be. But what I argue or theorize in my book is that if you're living in a society where there isn't an imminent threat of war or you're not sending a lot of boys to the military, then mothers kind of communicate to boys that they needn't be so aggressive. They, and they do this by being closer to them, having secure attachments spending a lot of time with their sons, and the boys do not spend that much time then relatively with other boys. So therefore, you have a lot more of expressing emotions and taking care of younger siblings and, and doing things that you know are more similar to girls. But should there be a threat of war or you have a large percentage of individuals entering the military, mother can't do that. So she says, okay, you're on your own. You've got to be independent. The boy will spend more time with males. Um, other young boys are going to fight, compete, engage in intergroup um, competitions, and then you have boys who are getting prepared to actually enter warfare. So I, that is what I would hypothesize, that mothers are somehow communicating to their sons, not consciously, but inadvertently by their actions, what kind of life they can expect and how secure is it going to be and how much are they going to have to take responsibility for dealing with the enemy. Um, I think all boys are interested in this, but in some cases they end up dealing with it much earlier than in other cases. Um, as for girls, um, as far as environmental stressors, there is some research that suggests that if there's not uh, a mother around who can really invest in her daughter, then girls are more likely to start menstruating earlier and to look for uh, a mate much earlier. And so she grows up faster. Still, however, you get girls who are um, going to be primarily taking care of children, and they will try to maintain their bonds with their mothers. And then, you know, going back earlier to what you said about schools, that also it seems like they're trying to communicate the message that you know you don't aggression is not needed right now. Cooperation, sort of like how you know what we think of as cooperation, not male cooperation, is what we need to emphasize. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what a, a middle class or a rich school communicates to boys. I'm not sure a poor school might try, but they're not going to be as successful. I mean, certainly we know throughout the United States, um, you look at a low socioeconomic status school, and the boys are given a lot more freedom, and they're getting in a lot more trouble, and they're spending a lot more time with each other. Certainly when I'm in a very poor school, a lot of times there's not even a teacher in the classroom, or if the teacher's there, she's just doing something else, and the boys are beating each other up. Um, when I lived in Britain, it was kind of, um, actually, even in the upper-class schools, it was kind of, um, I would say, encouraged that if a boy has a fight with another boy, well, just leave them alone. They'll beat the hell out of each other. Sorry, but they will beat the hell out of each other, and um, they'll figure it out, and that, and they'll be stronger for it. And actually, the teacher shouldn't um, intervene in any way. Of course, the upper classes in Britain are more likely to get involved in the military, but in the lower class schools in Britain as well, you see what you see here, which is the teachers are just not paying as much attention, so the boys are naturally getting their education on the side, not exactly what the teachers had in mind, but... In fact, if there is a war or if you need to send military, you know, send males into the military, it may be exactly what the teachers have in mind unconsciously. Right. So, I mean, Joyce, I mean, what are the implications of, of your research? I mean, I know you're primarily describing what's going on, but uh, what can, say, parents or educators do with this knowledge and how they educate or rear boys and girls? Okay, well, I think the first thing is to kind of think that there are natural tendencies that boys and girls have. Now, people would argue with me and say, oh, well, it's the TV that is teaching these tendencies or adults are somehow, uh, you know, passing these tendencies on. Whatever it is, by three years of age, boys and girls are being socialized in two different worlds. And I feel very strongly that that's the case because I see it in, in real life. And so, therefore, whatever you think are the origins of these sex differences, by the time children become adults, um, they have very, very different ways of thinking about the world and about each other. So when people say, oh my gosh, what's going on? You know, the men are dominant to the women in this organization. Something must be wrong. Or what is it? You have these uh, young men in the military and um, they don't feel that comfortable when you put young women into the military. What, what is going on? What's happening? Or you look at the fact that, you know, men are um, being asked to stay home and, you know, women are feeling that their husbands aren't doing enough. And then, you know, you see the, I know my husband once, I asked him to help out after a dinner party and he started vacuuming, you know, the, the table and the placemats. So, because I'd asked him to help and I thought, oh my gosh, what is the matter with you? You know, and of course he hasn't had any experience cleaning up and he doesn't like cleaning up, so he just wanted to get it done. So you have, you know, years and years and years of socialization that's occurring from infancy that's different for boys and girls. So you should expect that if you're going to try to enter the other milieu, um, that it's going to be rough, that it's going to be different, that you're going to not have the experiences. So that that's one obvious um, ramification. And the other one is I think a lot of people think that males really aren't aggressive, that we've caused it that there's some unnatural thing that we've done and it's just awful, which is just absurd to me having studied lots of other non-human primate species. Um, and the other is this idea of girls being so sweet. You know, girls need to attain status. Those who have the highest status are the ones that live the longest. That's true for boys. That's true for girls. So it makes sense to fight over status, however you can get there. And this idea that, you know, oh, yes, go to 
school and you'll find these lovely best friends and everything will be really nice um, is missing what's really going on underneath it all. And so I think there's a lot that parents could understand if they want to better help their children and, and, be, and be sympathetic and, and help their children when they get to be adults. Very well, Joyce, it's been a fascinating conversation. Where can people learn more about your book and your work? Um, um, well, I published a lot of articles. Obviously, um, my book is, is for sale. Um, I have a recent article that's just come out on um, sex differences in reconciliation in sports in current biology. Um, so all of these are kind of looking at the dynamics of males when they're together at all different ages and females when they're together at all different ages. Very good. Well, Joyce Benenson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. My guest today was Joyce Benenson. She's the author of the book, Warriors and Warriors, The Survival of Sexes, and that's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Benenson for links to uh, resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, I'd appreciate if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. Thank you so much for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.